Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine and today I was joined by James Montague, award-winning journalist, author of four books, including his latest, Justin Shops Now, 1312, Among the Ultras, a journey with the world's most extreme fans. The book is a global history of the Ultras movement from its birth in Italy and its roots in South America to its eventual spread to almost every corner of the world. It's a truly global youth subculture that is highly organised, anti-authoritarian and deeply political. 1312 tells the story of how the movement began and how it grew to become the global phenomenon that now dominates the stadiums from the Balkans and Buenos Aires. With unprecedented insider access, the book investigates how ultras have grown into a fiercely political movement, embracing extremes both on the left and the right, fighting against commercialisation and against the attempts to control them by the authorities who both covet and fear their power. Prior to that, James released The Billionaires Club about the rise of football super-rich owners, 31-0, in which he follows the smallest teams qualifying for the Brazil World Cup in 2014, and When Friday Comes, where James followed the game in every country in the Middle East before, during and after the Arab Spring. He's also written a number of TIFO video scripts, including extensive work on Qatar ahead of the World Cup and the stories of some of the Premier League's richest owners, um, he's just the, he's the coolest guy. He's one of the most interesting people I've ever met. And it was a pleasure to speak to him for today's episode in which we spoke about his new book, what it was like spending two years underground with the ultras and his scariest moments, his process, um, the people he met along the way. And ultimately, I suppose what the ultras movement uh, actually means. So um, it was, yeah, it was delightful as always to speak to James Thank you for downloading today's episode. And before we get started, let me remind you that this podcast is supported by The Athletic, which is one of the best places to read about football online. If you visit theathletic.co.uk forward slash TIFO, you can get a seven day free trial and 50% off an annual subscription, which works out to be about £2.50 per month. It's really worth doing and it helps support TIFO in the process. So if you would like to do that, give it a whirl. Anyway, here is today's episode. James Montague, <laughs> welcome, to we the, welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. Thank you for having me on. Um, I forgot to mention this before, but I've already done an introduction, which, okay. which the listeners will have heard, yeah. to explain who you are. Uh, but I've also mentioned in that that I haven't had the opportunity to read your book yet. 1312. 1312. 1312. Um, that's good that you said that, because <laughs> I, I called it 1312 in the intro. Everybody is the same. Yeah, that's, Maybe, that's maybe that's my publisher happen. was right that we should just call it Amongst the Ultras, <laughs> not 1312. Can you tell me what it is about? 1312 is a story about ultras around the world. Um, it's a story about fan culture. It's a story about how a very specific type of fan culture spreads around the world, coming out of Italy from the late 1960s, and becomes this huge kind of institution almost that is that almost spreads to every country on earth. And yet... <laughs> when you think about ultras, you don't really know anything about them. They're very anti-authority, very anti-mainstream uh, mm. and very anti-journalist, very anti-being uh, kind of examined in any way. So this so, is a very unusual thing then because you are a journalist. It is quite an unusual thing. Um, I mean, I've always been, I've always kind of seen myself as, I don't know, I'm not an ultra, but I've seen myself as part of that fan scene more than I would see myself as a journalist. I mean, when I started out, I was a freelancer. I couldn't get accreditation for matches. So I'd go to the cheapest part of the stadium and I would go and stand there. And then you talk to people and, and that's how, you know, that, that's how I watched football when I was younger as well. When I went to West Ham, I'd go and stand in the North Bank and I was always attracted to where the loudest noise was the most dangerous part of the stadium it was exciting it was really something that you you just attracted to it some people are some people aren't and I was one of the people yeah. that was given your career that isn't surprising it, to me well, you know and so I guess that's where it all started and and um, a, a constant theme in all of my other books was and all of my work really was I actually found I found the supporters more interesting than I found the players I found the players to be the least interesting part of football right um, which is sacrilegious in a way, I guess. I mean, I love football, I love watching football, but the the kind of kind of interest, the interesting kind of human stories I found 
much more in the fans mm. and how the fans kind of their relationship with the players, relationship with the club, relationship with their national team, relationship with their country. So I wanted to kind of finally tell the story that as I saw it of where ultras came from, how they became one of the most dominant youth cultures in the world. And also kind of tell some of the kind of more realistic stories about, you know, some of the really kind of important roles they've played in uprisings, revolutions, right. the political story of them as well. Um, that's not to say that they're whiter than white. I mean, there's also a story of homophobia, sexism, racism as well. I mean, this is a, a, a scene of extremes. Yeah. Um, you know, we had Martino Simsic from Copper 90 on the podcast a few months ago, and we were talking about ultras a lot uh, in that episode as well. Um, I know that he uh, he was helping you a little bit yeah, when you he were was, writing the book, right? And Martino is like one of the best journalists I've ever met. Right. Um, he somehow traverses this world, which is very anti-journalist, very anti-police, um, which is what 1312 means. It's... Uh, number code which means all cops are bastards right yeah. and so uh, and that's something that I uh, haven't put on there to be inflammatory but it's because every single every single football ground I've ever been to around the world has 1312 stenciled somewhere on it mm. like, it doesn't matter whether you're in Casablanca or Jakarta or uh, you know Moscow or you look long enough you'll find it right yeah you're not even long enough you just it's there you know it's 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 the, it's the international credo it's what unites um all of these groups. And what's interesting is that the hatred for the police it, 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 on the other side of the coin is the hatred for the media and especially journalists, which is one of the reasons why very few people actually get inside and, and can tell or explain the history of, of how these groups grow and some of the things that they've done, because there is just this huge mistrust. And even to the point where if you're in a, in a curve somewhere, around the world, you take your phone out to take a picture, somebody's going to grab your arm and tell you not to take a picture. Right. There's a real kind of anti-social media, anti-photography. Like, this is just something that happens in the moment and that you shouldn't really Anti-exposure, right? Anti-exposure, yeah. Recording. And so, um, you know, Martino is one of the, one of these incredible people I've met in the past couple of years who traverses this world um, and it's a very delicate balancing act between, you know, a culture which he loves and reveres and that uh, he wants to cover, but also one that necessarily kind of rejects him as well at the same time. And so, I mean, he, especially in the Italy chapter, he was he was absolutely essential for me to right. to operate. You know, he's uh, he's American and with Italian heritage, and he he really kind of navigated me round this. In- insanely complex country yeah. which you think you know oh it's Italy you know but it's Italy isn't Italy Italy's uh, Italy's a collection of city states effectively right yeah and that's reflected in its football rivalries and that's that's reflected in its ultras and kind of explains the ferocity of Italian ultras and explains a little bit about uh, how they develop in Italy rather than somewhere else mm. but then it becomes a kind of global uh, culture because because it's so colourful, because it's so popular, because of, in the 1990s, it goes out free to air yeah. in loads of markets around the world. The amount of people I spoke to in Sweden, in Germany, in Indonesia, who said, we started this group because we would see Euro goals and we'd right. see Italian football on Euro goals. Eurosport plays a huge role in this. And... Yeah, it, you know, it, it it then becomes this this it spreads all around the world, um, mixing up lots of other influences as well. I mean, you you know, before the ultras, you had the Ballas Bravas in Argentina, the Torcida in the nineteen forties in Brazil, um, and all of this happens. You know, it cross pollinates across the globe. Mm. At first, it's because teams are playing at different World Cups and they listen to it on the radio and they bring back that sound to the European mainland or uh, then later there's colour television. If I, remember, I was speaking to Mikkel, who's one of the main characters in the book, main, one peop- main people in the book, who's pretty much the godfather of the Swedish uh, ultra scene. Right. And he's kind of hooked by watching the 1978 World Cup final in Buenos Aires in colour. Yeah. And he sees this ticker tape hurricane, this blue and white ticker tape hurricane. And he was, his entire life is about recreating that Right moment, yeah. But in Swedish football, um, he's an artist. 
He is an artist. I mean, look, Ultras are artists. Ultimately, it's a, it's the it's probably the biggest collective art project in the world. Well, this is a good point then for me to say. Like the reason I brought up Martino is because when he was on the podcast, I asked him what is an ultra, and I want to ask you the same thing because in my mind, when I hear that term, I think of a hooligan, right? And I know that that's yeah, not yeah that is not what it is. But to, to me, that connection is is what it's made, and I anticipate that for people listening or some people listening, that might be the same. So, what is an ultra? Well, this is the thing. I mean. Actually, I think I'm further away from a definition the more <laughs> I wrote the book. Because, I mean, there is the, there's the classical definition, right? Yeah. Which is ultra means to go beyond, right? That's where the, the Latin root of the word comes from, to go beyond, to be there seven days a week, to, you know, um, t- to embrace the culture completely. So that is one way of explaining what an ultra is. Um, but I found that, Every single ultra I asked, and I asked this, like I even asked like Diabolic, you know, how do you define an ultra? And he would then, uh, Diabolic, by the way, is the the head of the uh, Irreducible, which is the far right ultra group um, of Lazio, who was assassinated three months later. But he, you know, even he didn't really have a very good explanation of what an ultra was. I mean, he was saying that the Irreducible is separate to ultras, like there's... There's the irreducible and then there's the ultras underneath it. Right. You know, but, but they, they, people struggled to have a definition of what it is or what it was. And what how I concluded it was that it was easier to explain um, what unites ultras is what they're against. Right. And hence why I called it 1312. This is an anti-authoritarian feeling that is found in football. And how do you express that is that you find it through this organized hierarchical structure which is called ultras but it's not i mean it's very far removed in many cases from the original italian idea of it it's kind of a mishmash of torcida from brazil ballas bravas from uh from argentina uh, hooligans from england and you know uh, ultras from italy yeah. it's all mashed together and kind of now exported into a kind of feeling of anti-authoritarianism right and so that's the closest i could get to being an ultra an ultra is a, is is about being against things rather than being for things. It's the global underground. I think it's a global. I think it's uh, in a a world where we know it, you know, you can go online and you can access any single subculture. The fact that you can't do that with the ultras or with even a subculture of the subculture, which is the arranged fighting scene within the ultra movement. I mean, it's incredible. I mean, how have we got to that situation? I mean, that that shows you that there are millions, tens of millions of people who jealously guard... (laughs) their privacy in a world where we have no privacy. Yeah. And I find that, uh, I, I find that kind of inspiring in a way. It's they, difficult can, to achieve. It's difficult to achieve. And the fact that they can do it, mm. you know, is a, there's lessons there that the rest of us can take on board. In that regard then, I mean, you've just written 1312. How many other books are there or in-depth projects are there which go to the same depth that, that, that your book does? I mean, there is, uh, there was recently Tobias Jones's book went, specifically into uh, ultra which went specifically into italian ultras right um there's a photo book that came out recently uh there's a lot of academic work out there right that is very hard to access very expensive <laughs> yeah uh, but actually until the, i mean say these three books have come out in the past six months but before then there's very little which is as you say i mean given that it is a global movement with thousands and thousands yeah. of people involved in today's world it is it's very unusual that Ooh. that is the case, right? So why did you choose this then? I mean, you, you've been on the podcast before. I'm sure listeners will have seen some of the, the videos that have been uh, made from scripts you've written for TIFO football videos, and they will have read your articles elsewhere. They know about you, but but why why were you drawn to, to ultras? Because that's where I was drawn to in the stadium. Right. And over the years, I've, you know, they, the, the ultras have been a kind of a, a continuous... Um, thread in all of my books um, in the last book in Billionaires Club which is about the the kind of super rich in the world um, destroying football and the world uh, but there in that there's a there's a section where I I get talking to the ultras of Shakhtar Donetsk in Ukraine um, in When Friday Comes I talk to the ultras of I mean the, a major story there was about the ultras in Egypt and how they helped to kind of overthrow Hosni Mubarak, especially the ultras of Al-Akhli, the Akhlawi. 
And that was like a seven year project that I was with these guys. And I watched them as they grew from nothing until they became a kind of a central part of the revolution and eventually were outlawed. Yeah. Um, because they became such a powerful entity. I mean, all the way through to the, you know, Port Said massacre where 72 of them were killed. So it's, it's a constant theme in my work. And I, um, I just felt that this was a really under, really under misunderstood area of study. Right. Um, and that you can understand a lot about the world and especially living in Belgrade and, and spending a lot of time in Eastern Europe, you could see how, especially with a lot of ultras that are ultra nationalistic or uh, very right wing, you could see the connection between them moving into the mainstream in those societies and the rise of, populist illiberal governments at the same time mm. and i thought it was now was the time to explain or try to explain or try to explain their stories of how that happened it's interesting when you put it like that because i i, I was thinking about asking you where you begin when you uh want to 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 start a project like this right but I, and we were talking about the book moneyland just beforehand which is another example of a, a more investigative book it's very linear, right? It's clear how uh, the, the author gets from the beginning of the book to the end. You sort of go on the journey with him. But when you are approaching uh, a topic which is as diffuse as, uh, as ultras, which is something that you say by the end you find harder to define than at the beginning, mm. how do you go about beginning that? What, what, I mean, what's the first thing you wrote down? That's a good question. I think the first chapter I actually wrote was the chapter on Macedonia. Uh, because it was the it was the most complete in terms of research, but and I had to show them something that I was doing something, and so I wrote the that publishers. My, or, yes, yeah. and I had to, so I had to write that in a couple of nights, and uh, you know it turns out it's one of the best chapters. So don't, don't do any. <laughs> You're Jack uh, Kerouac. Yeah, yeah, just just don't do any uh, studying. Don't do anything. <laughs> just do it last minute. It'll all work out, kids. It'd be absolutely yeah. fine. Um, no, but there was a, there was a there was a structure. I mean, all of these books have a kind of structure, and yeah. and and. This one was that I knew that there was a kind of, there are kind of four waves or three, four waves of, of where ultra spread around the world. I mean, it starts in, in Italy, of course, and then it moves to the Balkans and yeah. then it moves, you know, with the fall of communism, it turns up in Eastern Europe and then Northern Europe, and then it becomes something in North Africa and Asia. So it kind of starts in Italy and then moves out. But then before Italy, because Italy's the fourth chapter, there's a huge, um, there's a huge number of stories to be told about the fan culture growing in uh, Brazil and Argentina, right. and so the book actually starts in Croatia because right. Croatia has the oldest European organised fan group in the world, uh, the Torcida for Hydric Split, and that comes about uh, for only one game in 1950, the end of season game between Hydric Split and Red Star Belgrade. Uh, whoever wins that wins the title basically or if Hydric win it they win the title and they create a Brazilian style atmosphere based off the fact that the Yugoslav national team had just been to the 1950 World Cup and they were in the Maracanã listening to the Torcida which had existed already for 10 years making this kind of samba sound in the stadium um terrifying samba sound i think the, the explanation one of the players said was it was like a machine that stomped wow you know and so those players came back from brazil because yugoslavia lost that game against brazil and obviously brazil lost the final but lost that game and then come back to uh yugoslavia and explain to a group of students what that sound was like and that group of students start a group called torcida right which they then try to recreate it. And then it's chaos. It ends up like they end up getting banned by the authorities because they feel that there's too much Croatian nationalism kind of tied up in it. Right. Um, but in that story, you understand that when people think about globalization, they think about the modern globalization of uh, people movement because of air travel or because of the internet. But this was globalization. This was, it took months to travel from Brazil to Croatia, but it did. Yeah. And that was a, you know, that's what, gave birth to kind of European mm. fan culture in that way, even predating um, Italy. Right. So I knew that there was a, there was a, there was a before Italy and there was an after Italy and Italy is a really important section to explain why you still have groups in Indonesia who use Italian words. I mean, you know, 
you meet a guy in Jakarta, he's the Capo Tifosi. You know, you meet a group from a PSS Slayman and they're called Brigata Curvasud. Mm. You know, so the, the aesthetic and language comes from Italy, but actually even the ultras in Italy built that fan culture on something that came before mm. and it was all cross-pollinated between, between the continents. So who who are the main characters of your book then? Who are the who are the, the the people that you spent the most time with? <coughs> I think the main the main the main guy is a guy called Mikel, who um is the godfather of the of the Swedish ultra scene. Right, yeah. But he was also somebody who's really well connected in South America. Uh, especially in uh, Boca Juniors, especially with La Dossa. So was he a bit of a fixer for you as well? So he was a bit of a fixer, but like, so when it comes to the with the Barra Bravas, like they, they will, you can access them, right? Because they're, they're celebrities, but you have to pay them. And so that's not something I could do ethically. Um, so what happened was I, uh, I needed somebody that I could, I could have as a, as a fixer that could, that could open doors for me. So basically, I brought Mikhail with me on holiday. So a guy that I'd never met before met me at, uh, in Montevideo and we basically went on a three week holiday around South America, um, meeting some of the most frightening people I've, I've ever met. And so you spend a lot of time with this guy. Yeah. I mean, he's a, he's a lovely guy. Um, he's got something like a 20,000 picture archive, um, of TIFOs that he's collected wow. from, from around the world. I mean, he was swapping pictures of TIFOs with other like-minded people in Sweden, around the world. He's built friendships in um, Austria, Italy, South America. Um, I mean, he's, I, I mean, he probably wouldn't like me calling him a pacifist, but he's not involved in at all of the violent side of it. He's, he's a guy who loves the culture, the TIFO, mm. uh, the beer, and the community. I mean, it's the community, but also, I mean, it, it, part of the thing is always stealing the other side's flag, right? That's yeah. that's this kind of thing that appeals to the kind of competitive interest and 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 being like, uh, like capture the flag, capture the flag type of scenario. Getting well, in other, reality, like in the stadium, you try and steal. Oh a flag. yeah, yeah. Getting right. the other flag because if this you, is new to me, if you if you steal the other uh, group's flag, essentially they have to they have to liquidate the group. So this is such this a, is like an old rule that it's, it's, it's such a shame that if somebody steals your flag, you that's it. It's the end. And can you form another group? I mean, you could form another group, but everyone will know that would be the group that had their flag stolen. It's a, it's a massive shame. So this has actually happened. It happens all the time. I mean, if you go and look on uh, some of these Instagram accounts, you'll see you'll see groups displaying in front of when when a team will play another team, they will display the flags they've stolen from the other groups. It's a bit like scalps. Upside down. That's that's how you would show disrespect for flag. Hang them upside down. Right. Yeah. A lot of them set fire to them. Wow. Um, so there is this kind of heraldic thing going on. Um, and even the most inspiring ultras that I met like Il Boccia who's this guy who's like this incredible character who is he, he's basically like in Italy a lot of the ultra groups are now being there's connections to organised crime and the far right this guy has been banned from stadiums for 26 years in Bergamo he's one of the leaders the main leader of the, of the Atlanta ultras and he is a guy who even though he's been banned he believes in the purest form of support you know that it's about community that it's about helping the other people in the city that it's about uh showing your uh pride and also your strength so he, even he doesn't shirk from the idea of like actually it's quite fun stealing another side if they turn up with a flag trying to pinch their flag is quite good right. fun. so it's kind of this cat and mouse game is something that goes on with all right. with all ultra groups around the world and is that something do you think then i mean i had no idea about this but is that something which uh, could be mistaken for just thuggish violence, right? If that's what it ends up being, is it? Does it, I mean, presumably, I mean, it's quite it confrontational. I mean, it, it, right? it, 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 it does end in fights, and people will mis misunderstand that, or will that be misrepresented? Maybe, do you think? Maybe, but I mean that that is. I mean that's. I think that's probably the most. I think that's the mildest form. Yeah. Of of, of violence sure. in, in the scene. So, capture the flag. You know, capture the flag. So. So you spent three weeks with Mikhail. And then back in Sweden with him as well. Right. So then I, I, went, I mean, you must have like 
come uh, I want to hear more 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 about the story as well but like I'm interested when people spend so much time with someone that they haven't met before they don't really know yeah. what the dynamic of that relationship ends up like because it's a very intense thing to do yeah spend days on end with someone that you've never yeah. met before How, what was what was that like being in his presence I've never been in the army but I imagine it's like you know being brothers in arms to, yeah it was yeah. like you know, there was, there was, it wasn't like we were just going on holidays. We didn't know what we were doing. There was a clear, like, okay, so we're going to find out about the uh, battle of uh, Nacional in, in Uruguay. And we're going to go to Buenos Aires and, and uh, he had some contacts there. So we're going to go and find out more about uh, La Dosa. So there was a kind of structure to the trip, but you know, also we, I mean, we've gone great. Yeah. He, I mean, he was a, uh, a really inspiring character, really. A really inspiring person. I don't want to call him character. Character sounds like he's like no, sure. someone you've written like from nothing. But he's a guy who's dedicated his entire life to pursuing the purest form of ultra culture and has, you know, really sacrificed everything, every penny that he owns or ever had in the world into this scene. I mean, being around anyone that has dedicated their entire life to one thing, I find quite... Uh compelling it's I compelling guess, yeah. I, I think it's quite inspiring i mean yeah. you know it's it's it shows it shows a, a, a absolute single-mindedness of course but um you know I, I can see how he got so addicted to it and you know ultimately um one of the problems about not having kind of stories written about ultras that are well better known is that stories like Mikel's would never be told Yet this guy is probably responsible for Swedish football stadiums looking the way they do or for, you know, the fact that this book is out, the fact right. that none of this would have happened without him also, or certainly part, large parts of it would happen without him. The fact that he was sending um, these kind of pictures of TIFOs all across Europe, you know, in, in a kind of like a pen pal type situation. Yeah. And that's how this becomes a, of global culture he's he's an absolutely like stamp, integral part stamp of it collecting he's it? Like, I mean, they even talk about like the, the they would they would wash the stamps and reuse them and send back and send back these pictures and uh you know to to see to meet someone that actually did something i right. mean journalists don't do anything we just we just write about the world and reflect the world in a certain way but actually did something and changed something and built a kind of youth culture in in sweden I mean, he's achieved more in his life than I've ever achieved. And, uh, you know, to, to, it, was a, it was a pleasure to be able to spend some time with him and write his story. So, I mean, people in Sweden must know who he is. I mean, some people will know some who people. he is. I mean, with, within, like, within the culture, everyone within the, knows Within who he is. the scene, they'll know who he is. But, I mean, I feel that there should be more people that know who he is. You know? How, how do you think, how did he respond to um, being part of the book? Or how do you think he will respond to, to reading it? So I sent, after it went to print, I sent him a chapter. I, right. I, I'm not convinced he read it in its entirety, but he seemed quite happy. Uh, I also put a picture of him, and this is, uh, this is a bit of a no-no. But, I mean, he's 50 now, so I guess, you know, he's getting into that age where it's not so important to keep anonymity, sure. I guess. Um, all the other pictures I had to go through and edit so that I put, like, a black bar over the eyes right. for their, you know, anonymity. Um, but he was happy to have his picture on there and happy to have his real name there. And I think, um, did he want the, it, like, I think, I think, I think he's ready for some recognition for what he's built yeah. as well. And, and, uh, and he should get it. Yeah. I think, I mean, it's, it's one thing being this, uh, huge kind of culture and it's one thing writing about it in this way, but you know, he's one of the people that has made European ultra culture what it is. And, yeah. It's interesting that, um, uh, have you read The Fifth Risk? Michael I did, I did read book? The Fifth Risk, yeah. At the end of the book, uh, I don't know if this was in the in the first version or not, I think he he, he, he revisits and, and uh, does a little update. And I can't remember the guy's name, but he tells a whole story uh, about this man who dedicated his life to uh, the working Coast in the Guard Coast Guard. Guy. Yeah, yeah, The Coast yeah. Guard guy. It reminds me of that, like uh, someone who, who has such an enormous impact on the world and uh, is kind of, bumbling around in their little house and doesn't really seem to have a great deal of um, a desire for their story to be, be that well known. Not that they're unhappy for it to be shared, but that it's not important to them that it, it was not the first thought that how well, can I sort of publicize this? I and th it, it strikes me that may, it is maybe Mikhail one of those people. It's part of that. I mean, 
Um, I got the impression that it was like he'd invested so much it would be nice to have some kind of right. recognition for it yeah. but also a lifetime of anonymity has a, or a lifetime of, of striving for anonymity has you know has an effect yeah. you, you naturally shy away I mean one of the things we've been talking about I mean he's had this idea about doing a ultras encyclopedia which I think is a brilliant idea where yeah. he writes the history of all the clubs and the groups because you know as with all youth cultures, I mean, these, these are constantly, this isn't a one, uh, isn't one group that exists. I mean, groups, capos get older, they get replaced. Once you're in your thirties, you're too old in almost in most of these scenes. Is that part of it though? Is that not an intrinsic part of the ultra culture that it is transient? That yeah, it stuff is a, will be forgotten? That that's be, the point? But it's not quite like doing like in the jazz world or like, you know, improvised music where right, yeah. you can't record anything because that's against the idea. <laughs> sure, yeah. You know, the the fact is that, yeah, the, they, the, it, it's not transient. It's just, it's just a cycle of regeneration. Yeah. And the stories of what the groups did before, you know, should be, should be documented somewhere, yeah. you know, because it's this is something that has affected thousands of people's lives. So these people uh, that are members of the ultra groups and that have dedicated their life to it, or at least are, are, are invested in it as young people now, as you met many of them, did you find that they had similarities to the, to each other? Do you, do, do you think that you have to have a certain predilection for something to be drawn towards being in an ultra group? Is there a, I'm not, I'm not going to say like a, is there a psychological type or no, whatever? I, mean, I, I, don't, I don't mean like that, but I guess, I, I mean, like people that gravitate towards book clubs, for well, example. I mean, you, you, the, the, the best I can explain it is that like I was like, if you go to a football stadium, like I did with my dad, went up to park, went to bowling ground and um, stood in the West stand and you look behind uh, at the North Bank and you see that swirl of mass of people in the song and you're like, I don't want to be here. I want to be there. Right. And every ultra I spoke to, to explain to me how, like what was the first time you, you saw the curve mm. told me exactly that same story. Right. They turned up at 13, 14 years old with their family and they had an inexplicable attraction to being in that area because it was dangerous, because it was exciting. Um, whether that's because of uh, an adrenaline rush thing, mm. I don't know. But it's about wanting to be where the action's happening. I don't think that's yeah. that's that an unusual. No, no. But it's interesting, like for me to listen to that because I had or have the precise opposite <laughs> when I go to football games. Like I, I, I uh, my instinctual reaction is to fear the the big group and to you know not want to be a part of it or to be anxious of it or whatever. Which is why. Um, I'm interested in ultra, ultras because it's never been something that I've been a part of. And I feel like there is a, a that for someone with my personality type, maybe there seems to be a bit of a block on me understanding pretty much like with the exception of the sort of historical and cultural significance of it, what the big deal is. Like I, 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 I I find it difficult to to understand because of my predilection to fear the group rather than to be drawn it, towards the it, adrenaline. Yeah, but once you're inside the group, there is no fear because you're part of a community. Yeah, you know, you're part of something that's bigger than you, and you know, once you're inside it, you're it's exciting to be inside it. Yeah, and as a young person, being inside that, uh, giving structure to every moment of your life, and having a certain responsibility, both in keeping secrets and keeping your identity yeah. to one side. Uh, you know, that that's, that's a very seductive culture to be right. part of. I can see, I, I can see, I can see that. I mean, I, I grew up in a culture where we didn't have ultras. Yeah. I had other uh, extracurricular activities. I mean, I was, <laughs> I, I found walking. my kicks from dog walking. Sure. I mean, running away from the police a lot. I mean, vandalism, you know, getting chased by the police. That was right. my, that was my jam. You know, I loved, I loved that. That was great. I was a very um, good boy. You know, um, deep down I was too. But, you know, <laughs> I can see how uh, good boys can be attracted to things that yeah. aren't necessarily good. So, I mean, there's the young uh, James Montague. He's in the West Stand. He's looking at the group. Do you feel a bit like what you have uh, done now is uh, you finally, you finally done what the, the young James Montague wanted to do? You've not become a part of the group, but you've investigated the group, right? That seemed, that seems like a pretty direct link to me. Um, I was quite, um, I mean, part of me is quite disappointed by the whole thing, to be honest, because um, I thought that 
One, three, one, two. I thought I'd be kind of not welcomed with open arms. I mean, of course, that's not going to happen. But I've always felt like they were my people. You're one of them. But I wasn't one of them and I'd never be one of them. Is that because you're a journalist? Because I'm a journalist. I I would always be an outsider. I would always be, there'd always be an asterisk against my name. So ironically, you went into the one career that would prevent the young James Bond from doing the thing he, the very thing Uh, he wanted to do. Exactly. I mean, if I, I mean, if I grew up in Bergamo, I'd be... Sure. Until they, until they threw me off a bridge, right? I would be an Atalanta ultra. Yeah. There's no doubt about it. But I wasn't. I was born in Essex. Yeah. Um, just before football was completely, you know, changed. Sure. So. Um, it's quite late, by the way. We've been to the pub and we're uh, opening. Yeah. There we go. You can enjoy the noise. I did this perfectly. You did. I was just about to say that you did it in one go before. And now it's taking a long time. Look at that, how embarrassing. I can't remember why I asked you now. Just a short interruption in today's episode for me to remind you that this podcast is supported by The Athletic, the best place to read about football online. If you visit theathletic.co.uk forward slash TIFO, you can get a seven day free trial and 50% off an annual subscription, about £2.50 a month with that code. So... What might you do with your seven-day free trial? Well, it strikes me that it's relevant to today's conversation to uh, talk a little bit about um, a piece that was written by Matt Slater, which was published a couple of weeks ago. It's called Dogs, Riot Gear, Water Cannons and Abuse, Being an Away Fan in Europe. Um, Matt Slater is a a brilliant writer. He writes a lot about the business of football and the uh, economics of it as well. Um, And this piece is uh, is a really interesting read. It's not dissimilar to some of the conversations I've been having with James today. So um, if you get your seven day free trial by visiting theathletic.co.uk forward slash TIFO, you can read it. I'm sure you will enjoy it. And you can, I mean, I did this a few weeks ago. I sort of read through everything that Matt has released on there. Um, He's a really interesting guy to read. Uh, So if you do that, I'm sure you will be convinced to spend your hard earned £2.50 per month, continuing to subscribe um, and uh, continuing to read pieces by the excellent Matt Slater amongst a cohort of other excellent writers. Um, Anyway, thank you for listening. Apologies for the interruption. And back to James. Oh, I said, ironically, you went into the job, the very job that prevented you from doing the... So, okay. So you're with these people. You're an outsider. You must, I mean, you probably still get the adrenaline kick though, right? I mean, presumably, how often were you um, not afraid, but how often were your, uh, your, you a little bit anxious about well, I mean, what you I were was doing? I mean, I was frequently anxious. I mean, the underlying anxiety was about the fact that in every situation, I was a journalist. I mean, I, yeah. I didn't go in undercover. Yeah. So everybody knew that I was there to tell their stories, even like, but there was still a huge amount of nervousness when Martino and I went to the headquarters of uh, the Ilo Duchible, the Lazio Ultras. What were the headquarters like? Um, when you walked in, it was, it was quite interesting. It's, it's kind of quiet street in Rome. Um, and we thought, is this the right place? And when we were looking around, there's loads of stickers all outside of like far right ultra groups from around the world. Right. No swastikas or anything like that, but um, then you, you're invited inside and it's kind of like a like a mini warehouse with a kind of mezzanine floor and it has loads of the kind of original TIFOs that they did back in the 1980s. Like, you know, I mean, these, these are historical artefacts, you know, but then right. there was also lots of stickers from groups from Bulgaria, Poland. It's a clubhouse. It's a clubhouse. Yeah. Um, but there was lots of like, you know, there's lots of far right imagery, Nazi imagery yeah. inside. Okay. I would like to come back and ask you about that as well. Yeah. And, um, you know, and then we, we were taken around and I didn't take any photos. I just kind of visually um, took pictures of it all. And we, we, we were taken around and we were getting ready for the Fabrizio interview. And uh, then it was like, oh, okay, uh, he's he's been delayed. And I mean, I, I think we knew we were being kind of tested to see you know, whether we would be the kind of people that they would want to speak to. Yeah. And so they made us kind of hang around for like eight hours. Right. And the test is that you stay. And that we stayed. And then when he eventually, I mean, he has a lot of court cases. He said he was with his lawyer. I mean, he did have a lot of court cases. I mean, he he had potentially years and years in jail ahead of him if he was found guilty for many of the things he was accused of. Um, Mainly to do with his more extracurricular activities in the drug industry. Right. The drug business. Or allegedly in the drug business, but I mean, who knows anymore? 
And he, uh, yeah, and when, I mean, when he arrived, I mean, one of the most kind of interesting things was he gets out of the car, and I, I never forget this, like, everybody gives the Roman salute. Right. When he gets out. And what what it, is the Roman salute? It's, it's well, it's the, it's the Nazi straight right. home salute, but yes. it's the Roman salute. That's yeah. where Hitler got it from. Right, okay. Um, and he, or he adapted it from that. So everybody's giving a straight arm salute. What and, did you do? Well, I didn't give one. Yeah, no, but so, I mean, <laughs> did you? Do you think you looked visibly surprised? Or I mean, I mean, you're kind of observing the situation. I yeah. mean, you're not you're not going to go in and say, "Don't do that." Yeah, no, no, sure, yeah, I mean, no, you observe just, it, and you just you know, you I can't imagine what I would do in the well, situation. You yeah. just you know, and he comes in, and we shake his hand, and he takes us up to his desk, and next to his desk is a big portrait of Mussolini. And a massive, like, kind of, it's kind of an Italian Nazi era flag. So it's like a red flag with a white circle in it, but right. with a different, with a, with a kind of Celtic cross in the middle. And he sits down, and I, I'll never forget this. He he rolls a joint, and he lights it, and then he hands it to me. Yeah. And that was the, that was the second test. Right. That was the second test to see whether you you will you know, partake in this. The right thing to do is to do so, presumably. Uh, yeah, so we, we then we then smoked the joint and then um, and then he spoke and he spoke for two hours and he was he was very open about um his fascism, his racism, his anti Semitism. What um, kind of what kind of man is this? I mean, can you just describe those views then? I mean he is a man who I mean yeah, you know, I'll, I'll be uncomfortable repeating a lot of the stuff that he said. I suppose. I mean, maybe you shouldn't. You shouldn't be if you're prepared to write them down. But I mean, you know, this is a guy who believed in the Zionists were controlling the okay. world. Yeah, you know, this is a guy who would frequently drop the N word, saying that it's disgusting that you can't use that word anymore. Right. That it's his imperative to be as big a bastard as possible. Yeah. Um, you know he was someone who openly called himself a fascist. And how, and when you're talking to him for two hours, right? How do you, are you friendly? I mean, I mean, I'm not unfriendly, no, but right. then I'm also asking questions about challenging his beliefs as well. I mean, I mean I'm not challenging his beliefs to say, why do you believe that? I'm not going no, in course, there like yeah. pointing a finger in his chest, but I'm saying, how have you come to that conclusion or challenging his, but like when he yeah. started talking about, there was a, there was a moment when he was talking about, um, there, uh, there'd recently been a story about how women had been banned from the front of the curve of North. Yeah. Whether, whether the Chibler could have like sit or stand. Um, and he said, Oh, this is, this is ridiculous. That wasn't a story like that at all. And it, I mean, clearly it was the story. I mean, it, that was true. So you, you kind of say, well, I mean, Really? Is that, 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 that is what happened. I mean, I've seen leaflet, I've seen it translated. That is what happened. Right. And then he kind of like had this other, uh, then he, he kind of changed the conversation to how the Italian FA had decided to have the Super Cup in Saudi Arabia. Right. Where women weren't allowed to go in yeah, certain yeah. parts of the stadium. Which you find with a lot of people when you argue, you know, they, they, they're always shifting. What about her? Yeah, what about her, you know? Are you, are, are, I'm sorry to interrupt again. Mm. I just, I'm fascinated by the exchange and what's going on in your, in your head at mm. this time because it, it, my only, my, the only thing I can compare this to, having not been in a situation like that, is when I'm in the pub and get chatting to someone and they suddenly views come out that I'm uncomfortable with. But the, the impulse for me is sometimes that it's, I guess, because I'm not trying to get anything out of them. And this is not an interview. The impulse for me sometimes to my shame is to kind of just laugh it off a little bit and not, but when you, when you are countering something that he says, you know, he says, that's not the story about the women being banned from the front seat. And you say, well, no, that is the story. Are you, presumably it's an intimidating thing to do that, to, to, uh, to disagree directly with what he said. How I mean, do he, you manage he, that? He's, he's a, I mean, it was quite an intimidating atmosphere. I mean, he had his group of people all around right. him. You've just um, waited for eight hours, right? I waited for eight hours. But also, I think um, by asking fairly straightforward questions, um, you get a certain amount of respect. If you're, right. if you're too uh, deferential, um, you'll be eating for breakfast. Right, yeah, okay. You know, so, yeah, you ask these questions. and But ultimately... 
he was, uh, I was also, I kind of knew what I wanted. I, I, I went into that conversation knowing his worldview in, in, to a certain respect. And, you know, this is obviously a far right ultras group, yeah. right? So, you know, that wasn't surprising that I was going to hear those views. But what I also wanted, I mean, straight away, the first thing he said to me was one of the first things he said to me was, so I guess you want to know about the violence. Right. You know, and almost like, oh, we get English people here from, you know, West Ham fans because there's a friendship between the ICF and uh, the Intercity firm, which, you know, the, the old West Ham hooligan firm and, and and Lazio. So people turn up, they want to hear like the old greatest hits of all the fights. Yeah. And I didn't want that. And I said, like, actually, I don't want that. I mean, I did want that, but I didn't want that. I yeah. wanted, actually, I want to know like how did this begin mm. like what's the history of this how did this become what it was and that that was the most disarming thing it was it was you know i'm not sure many people had really asked him or sat there or certainly right. foreign people had asked him you know how did this how did this group begin and how did you um take it to to the level that you did right. and so that was i think that's we left on very good terms um he invited us back uh, we felt very guilty afterwards. Or felt guilty is probably the wrong word, but we felt kind of elated that we'd spoken to him because he's such a difficult, he was such a difficult person to come and see. And very few people have managed to interview him um, in that way that when it happened, we were like, you know, it was like a buzz. Was, I was going to ask, like, how do you it, feel it, when it you was, walk out of that? It was, it was like adrenaline, yeah. you know? And his bodyguard kind of hugged me and Tino. Right. And I remember going to a pub with Martino afterwards and we were we were sitting there, we boarded a beer and we were like, oh, wow, we got it. Yeah. Amazing. We've been months in the in the building of this and we've got it. And we sat there. And then later on, we met one of his mates in this bar in central uh, Rome and we explained it to him what happened. Mm. And the guy said, uh, yeah, you've uh, this guy's won. And I said, what do you mean? And he's like, well, look at you. You're like school kids like yeah talking about the fact these and then i sat back and i thought yeah that's that's a really important thing i mean we've we've i'd lost in not necessarily during the interview but certainly in the aftermath of the interview i'd lost sight of the fact that what we'd been hearing has had been horrific because yeah. it'd been so normalized over the course of a two-hour and for the book it's it's great and for the book it's great but yeah. then you're also thinking well okay for the book it's great but the you know what do i do with this how do i yeah, how yeah. do i present this and so all the way through researching 1312 with everybody that i was with whether it was connected to organized crime or the far right and especially I mean, we haven't talked about ukraine yet but ukraine is a big chapter where i've, I've had this similar kind of moral dilemma is how should I conduct myself, but also what story should I be telling? What shouldn't I be telling? Yeah. But there's no way you can tell the story of the ultras without delving into this world. Yeah. And you've got to tell the story that as it is and not how you want it to be. And that's ultimately how I approached it is that be honest with yourself that that's how you felt Write about. That's how you felt. And I hope that when people read the book, they will, um, see that it's not glorifying anything or uh, mm. giving a platform to people uh, of views that I find abhorrent. It's about telling the stories of people that haven't been told before and you need to know that people are thinking this way. Yeah. Tell me about Ukraine. Well, Ukraine is like, that's that's probably, that was probably the the, the story of all the stories. That was the story that was probably the most difficult for the publishers to deal with. Um, because with Ukraine, it's a very interesting story because the Ukrainian ultras play this really important role in the Maidan revolution. And before 2014, there's a, there's a BBC documentary that you can find on YouTube about Ukraine's ultras before uh, Ukraine co-hosts the 2012 European Championships. Right. And it's all about the racist ultras. You know, they go to Kharkiv and there are people giving, there's a whole stand giving Nazi salutes. And that is certainly uh, part of the fan scene there. Certainly before 2014, most people in Ukraine would be like, these are Nazi hooligans. But then the Maidan revolution takes place. And what's interesting is that 
effectively it's a, it's a revolution. It's a pro-European liberal uprising, right? Because um, Yanukovych, the president, rejects the European association agreement that's given to him by the European Union and under pressure from Vladimir Putin, the Russian president, um, decides to reject that and sign some some agreement with the Russians instead. Yeah. And so this leads to this uprising, which is pro-European, extremely liberal in kind of in 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 the way that it's been conducted. But then the crackdown on the protests in Maidan brings huge numbers of ultras to the streets to protect them. Right. So they become kind of like a almost like a kind of forward operating kind of force. Guardians. Guardians, if you will, of 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 these uh, liberal activists, even though they are from polar opposite uh polar opposite. Yeah. But they're from polar opposite uh parts of the political spectrum. And so That's crazy. Yanukovych uh flees the country. I mean, you have, you know, uh, dozens and dozens of people are killed. But eventually he uh, he flees the country and the, and the without the muscle of the ultras, which and you you might ask why is it that ultras turn up in these in these situations and can make any difference? It's like well, think about what ultras do in a week. I mean, you go to any stadium, you know, look at the police presence. You know, this is a group of people that know how to deal with the police. They fight them in on almost a weekly basis. They know what to do when they're baton charged. They know what right. to do when they are. Uh, tear gassed their experience in, their experience in a way that and this happened in Egypt with the ultras when Tahrir Square took place you had as one as one of the leaders told me you had the Muslim Brotherhood you had the liberals and you had the ultras and that's it right it's almost and, like a sort of uh, protectorate militia or something yeah it is but I mean it has to obviously I mean if I had from what I had known of of Ukraine before 2014, I mean, I would have assumed that they would have taken a pro-Russian stance, you know, or at least would mm. not be be on the side of of the protests in Maidan. But the they they found a, a common enemy in uh, what they saw was kind of Russia's nefarious hand, right? And so, and also presumably the the police were cracking down on the protests as well. Well, that's right? it, and the, and and there was a kind of hired militia for the police as well. So, right. It was, um, you know, it was, it was, uh, you know, they played, they become kind of folk heroes for many people within yeah. that revolution. I mean, it, we can never escape the fact that these guys are, you know, a lot of them are members of the far right, but that's kind of forgotten for many people because yeah. they become kind of, you know, the protectors of this revolution. Right. And then not only that, when Yanukovych uh, flees the country, um, many of those ultras, even ultras in the east of the country, which is, you know, uh, Russian speaking, um, you know, much more pro Yanukovych and much more pro Putin than say the rest of the country, even they join in, in this kind of protecting in the town and city squares around Ukraine. Right, yeah. And then they go and join militias, which the Azov Battalion being the biggest one and the most established, and they then go and volunteer to fight the America, uh, the sorry, the Americans go and fight the Russians on the, on the front line. Right. And so these ultras then become like the Azov battalion, according to, uh, Andre Biletsky, who's a kind of far right figure who was in jail during Maidan, but was released afterwards and then goes on to, to run the Azov battalion. Uh, 60% of the people in, his battalion were from the Ecola footballer scene, which is the, the, the fighting scene around the ultras movement in Ukraine. Right. 60%. Yeah. Uh, and they were trained and dedicated and that's why they made to be good soldiers. And so after the time that they were part of the conflict and they kind of came back into civilian life, they'd been protectors of the revolution and now there are veterans in the war against Russia. And so they were, their standing has been completely revolutionized. Like Robin Hood. I mean, a little bit. I mean, there's, if you speak to um, activists now, they'll be like, Look, these guys are fascists. And it's difficult because you can't call them fascists. Because if you call them fascists, then they'll say, well, that's what the Russian propagandists would say. Because okay. Russia wants to paint them as the, 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 the uprising in Maidan as yeah. a fascist 
uh, uprising, right? An, like an anti-Western thing. In uh, yeah, a way, but yeah, no, 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 an un. Uh, like uh, a, a no, actually the unwestern. Op- uh, no, the opposite. They want to uh, like this a CIA funded oh, okay. far right yeah, yeah. uprising. Sure. And so any criticism of the ultras or like what their political proclivities are, right, um, is kind of waved away. So and they've got I, a bit of a free free pass. Yeah. So I, I mean, I, I saw that myself. I mean, there's a guy who I follow in in one three one two called Sergei Filimanov, who. Uh, is one of the leaders of the Rodici, which is the kind of hooligan firm of Dinamo Kiev. And he's there on the front line during Maidan. He goes and fights in Azov. He gets injured. He comes back. And then he's kind of like handpicked to be the the face or one of the faces of the National Corps, which is the political party of Azov, basically. Um, and, you know, he's been groomed for political office. And... You know, it, these ideas have been completely mainstreamed. Mm. Um, but we can't forget that what the reason was for their that for them fighting. I mean, of course, because they felt the shared enemy. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Um, but also because you know they had regular and very long-standing experience of fighting the police, and that's why. Mm. they end up in that position. That's why all ultras end up in that position. So, you like, okay. So is it you writing this for two years? Yeah, I mean, the past year has been most of the writing and but, most of the, a lot of the stories came at the beginning of this year, uh, last year. Right, okay. So really it all came together. I mean, two and a half years of working on it, but really the last year was, the last 12 months is when it all came together. And that's been an, an, an intense period of time for you, right? And that's uh, presumably quite a lot of traveling yeah. and a lot of uh, high adrenaline situations. Yeah. Um, how are you feeling now it's all over? Because that's quite, that's quite a big transition to go from, from, from in that uh, process to, you know, in the, in the TIFO office. I find at the end of every book, you're kind of, uh, I mean, like, it's like a grenade has gone off next to you, kind of shell-shocked. Um, and it takes months. And usually in that period, I found that that's when I kind of blow up my life in some way. Right. Um, and I, I was desperate not to do it this time because I've got a daughter, so I don't really want to blow up my life anymore. Uh, but, it, you know, it was, it was you know, you, you're in this, it, it takes a long time to recover from something like that, you know. Um, not just the the intense travel, the intensity of the situations that you find yourself in, but also once you've had those, locking yourself away kind of on your own for the majority of the time trying to write it as well. Um, you know, it's difficult to adapt back to real life. Right. Uh, and I feel a bit better now. I've not really had a break from it, uh, to be honest. But the thought of writing another book right now makes me physically sick. <laughs> So, uh, but I will get back to it, you know, unless uh, this gets ripped to pieces and, (laughs) um, you know, I'm told to basically stop. Uh, But I I don't think I'll ever do a book like this again. Right. Like uh, the the amount of travel, uh, it annoys me that I've forgotten to uh, collect uh, air miles. Right. Uh, my entire life. Cause You'd be I'd, loaded by now. I'd be fucking, I'd be travelling everywhere first class. Yeah. And I mean, I'm not a, a posh guy, but if I could have just one thing, one thing, it would be just not to be in coach all the fucking time. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, if I'd collected the MRs, I'd probably be flying business class everywhere. But, <laughs> uh, so... Yeah, but I, I'll never do. I, also, I'm, I'm too old to do it, you know. And also, I've been incredibly fucking lucky. I mean, right. when Friday comes, thirty-one nil billionaires club. This one, one three one two. They've all involved blockbuster, like, blockbuster, blockbuster. Hopefully, blockbuster. Right. I mean, they're like the first three. It's a pretty good track record. It, well, I mean, I wish they'd sold more copies. But the, the the but the the point is that that they all took me on adventures where I was lucky to escape a lot of them. Yeah. And my luck's going to run out one day. I mean, I hope I'll just fall over on the street and bang my head on the curb and that's how I go out. Right. That'd be kind of fitting end, you know. But the... A bit like Steve Irwin. Didn't he get stabbed in the chest by a skate? He, 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 he by, by a, um, what are they, not a skate, they call them a, um, the really big flat ones. 
Stingray. A stingray, yeah. which are usually, usually incredibly safe, I think was the irony there, that he threw himself into numerous dangerous situations and instead yeah. of having his head bitten off by an alligator, he was uh, killed by a stingray. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd like to be killed by a stingray. I think that'd be nice. But okay. that, I, I definitely, you know, I just, I think, I think I've got to quit when I'm ahead. Yeah. Pretty much. And... Uh, so yeah, I don't know. I don't know what I can write about really if it isn't about going to crazy places. So I've got to kind of reevaluate my life. Maybe write a novel. Maybe write a a biography of a player or a manager. A Hollywood movie. A Hollywood movie. That would be great, man. I've heard some of your Hollywood movie ideas, which we won't divulge on here. But I, but I don't know if you knew they were Hollywood. One of them you did, but two others you told me about. They're Hollywood movie ideas. Well, I, I did write a script once about uh, me being a kind of 11-year-old, a love, a love story when I was 11, kind of semi autobiographical. Mm. But it will never get made because <laughs> you can't really have a sexualised 11-year-old in Hollywood. So. Not anymore. <laughs> it's not anymore. Not God. anymore. World gone mad. <laughs> Political correctness gone mad. You know, so, yeah, I'm not sure if that's a, a route to go down. <laughs> okay. Uh, but, yeah, so... Yeah, I don't know. I don't know really what to do uh, next, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, but then, I mean, I've got a pretty bad cough. Sure, coronavirus is it's surging through, wildfire it's through. through the nation. So yeah. maybe my, that decision will be taken for me. But, maybe it will. Um, but yeah, I, uh, I'm, you know, I, I feel really kind of blessed and lucky. I mean, I'm not a particularly religious person, but I mean, there's part of me that thinks that. I've died several times and that this is just one of several dimensions that I exist in. Mm. And this is the one that I remember because so many things could have gone wrong that it seems insane that somehow I've come out the other end. Um, And, you know, a lot of people also say, well, it's football. Why are you risking it? I remember there's a couple of reviews under a couple of books on Amazon. Like, why is he putting this amount of effort into this? Um, Hey, well, you know, that's how you get the the title, the Indiana Jones of football, yeah. which is my favourite name for you. I'm going to get that printed down my own. <laughs> Next to uh, 1312, right? Well, I did, I, I, very, I very nearly got 1312 tattooed. I, mean, I don't you? have any tattoos. Right. I almost did that, but then I almost got a Manic Street Preacher's tattoo when I was 16, oh, and I wow. didn't get I that. I can't imagine which one would be worse. That's... Uh... <laughs> I mean, you could incorporate them both in a way. And I'm very it. proud of my Manic Street Preacher's kind of obsession. Hey, sure, sure. But, I mean, having MSPCP, I mean... Were they punk enough to uh, endorse the 1312 movement, do you think, Manic? Yes, I think so. Yeah. But I'm a little worried because I think Richie Edwards, having listened back recently to the Holy Bible, I think Richie Edwards might have gone on the alt-right Right side of things. He's, he's gone Morrissey. He's gone Frank Turner. I think he would have been a bit, bit. Well, he's Frank Turner. No, I think that's actually. I forgot we were recording this. That was. I think there was a misunderstanding. Listen, I love Million Dead. I will. I will fucking. Have we talked about Million Dead before? No, they are one of my favorite. I fucking love Million oh Dead. Breaking God. the back. What a great tune. What that have is. we been doing? Talking about this for an hour. We fuck, could have been talking about Million Dead too. Let's talk about Breaking the Back. I even like the second Two album as seminal well. Album. I mean, yeah. the first one's obviously better than the it second one. It is better. One. And also the, the single, I gave my eyes to Stevie Wonder in the middle. I'm not a huge fan of his more folky stuff, no. but I quite like the folk versions of the of the Million Dead songs. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what the, uh, uh, what's it called? I'm staring at like Strange on Planes. Yeah, on Trains. Like, on yeah, trains. Yeah, yeah. Live, one of his live acoustic versions. I Am The Party that. as well. He oh, does man. that. Like, so does a live good. version of that. I love the one that's, what's the, uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Propaganda yeah, Machine. Yeah, but the problem is that a lot of the lyrics are like, they're cringy now. They're cringy now. Because, but, but at the time, I was a teenager listening to that. Yeah. I think he was a young, very young man writing those. Yeah. Oh, but something Willy Wonka is a neoliberal's dream. Yeah, yeah. So, but, but, but I tell you what, there is one song that really, I mean, breaking the back. I mean, he's the word chav, which I don't, I don't agree with. But there's, uh, there is the Owen last Jones. song on the album, which is, uh, um, yeah, it's quite long. But those lyrics still, stand, I think that sure. I think that that's the high point of yeah. of Million Dead. Brilliant, yeah. you know. I, I think staring at strangers on trains is uh, is that's that's of all of the of all of the songs that they've written that, that he's written. That one is is the best song. 
if that makes sense. Like in terms of the structure, like in the traditional way, breaking, and breaking the back is the like I sure, okay, I, yeah. I, no, I still listen to that good. pretty regularly. But is there an acoustic version of that? Does that work so. dressed up in different things? This so. is what I mean. Like staring at strangers on trains, you could write that as as an R and B song. <laughs> you could write that as a, you know as a kind of disco tune. Frank that's Turner, a, that's if you're song. watching this, he's not. Please <laughs> make it as an. Well, he's probably not, but like he definitely isn't. But you know. I started this by saying that, uh, you know, comparing him to Morrissey, I should, I should uh, pull back on that. But there, there is a, a, there there is a misunderstanding. A, but there is an online conversation about... There's an online conversation about you know, it. But I've not seen much. I don't, I don't really understand it. But. I think it's because most of his songs now have the word England in the title. Ah. You know, but uh, hey, that's a five minutes of conversation, which is irrelevant to 99% of people listening. I, I expect the number I, of people who've heard of Million Dead will be very small indeed. Or about 100 Reasons. I never quite cracked the whole 100 Reasons thing. That's um, great band. Great band. Great band. You really think so? Yeah. Who? Okay. Uh, we're at the end now. But who's who's the teenage James Montagu? Well, I guess you're, by the time Million Dead are out, you're not a teenager anymore. No. Right? No. No. So, I'm I'm in my mid twenties. So as a te- you have no reason to be listening. No, no. excuse. As a, as a teenager, then what's the most important? Ba- is it the Mannix? Uh, Mannix a bit later, but I uh, still listen to this album really regularly. I because I loved Britpop was going on. So I'm of that era, but uh, I loved Weezer. Right, Weezer's Blue album sure. yeah. is, I think, probably one of the best pop albums of all yeah. time. It's perfect. People love Weezer. The only reason I wouldn't say it is as good as like I don't know, like uh, you know, Wall of Sound stuff or something like that is uh, they say Garage, right, which really fucks me off. And but then I spoke to an American and like, why do you call Garage? It's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's the, it's the kind of uh, this is the wrong word, but the sort of lazier. I, I have. We're the lazy that. ones. This. But I don't think. We, I think garage is harder to say than garage. It, garage yeah, garage is the correct around. is the correct pronunciation, right? Is it? Yeah, I think that's how the isn't it isn't it a French Sorry? word? Is it? I Think so. Oh. I don't know, but like yeah. So Weezer Weezer was a great band. I uh, love Pearl Jam. Yeah, um, sure. And you know uh, Metallica. What therapy? The, okay, sure, sure. I mean, off the back of that, there'll definitely be a, a number of listeners very interested now, <laughs> more than when you described the book, but because of your similar taste in music. Where can they purchase the book? From the internet? Uh, the internet is a place you can purchase the book. Is it uh, out now? It's out on Thursday, so by the time this so comes out. It will out. be out, yeah. So It will have been out last Thursday. Amazon. We'll put a link in the description. What's your preferred link for us to put in the description? Uh, I mean, I know. Where do you get more money when they buy it from? Does it matter? I don't really know to be honest. I guess it makes a difference. If you get it from Amazon, it goes up in the rankings and right. publishers look at that. So maybe Amazon. Okay, get it from good. Amazon. We'll put a link in the description to Amazon. But you absolutely should buy this. You should also buy The Billionaire's Club. You should also buy When yeah, Friday maybe. Comes. They, def- they definitely should. Yeah. Um, James Montague, thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. It has been a pleasure for me also. And um, we will uh, we will revisit next time you're in London. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, we'll be back next week uh, with something else. Thanks. Mm-hmm.